0: Dusty Will presents The Tyler Archives Episode 24 The 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 Tyler Archives A Poem Trick or treat Smell my feet. Give me something good to eat. If you don't, I don't care. I will pull down your underwear. What a masterpiece. Truly a perfect simile of unrequited love. In case you couldn't tell, it's Halloween. Or well, it's almost Halloween. You know, it's hard to tell when these episodes will actually be released, but suffice it to say that Halloween is close and spooky energy is in the air. The dead walk, the ghoul's gawk, and the witch's... Talk. About brewing. Like potions and... things. (sighs) Get together, Tyler. Look, I'll be honest, I'm a bit wiped. Madam Joe and I have been training a lot recently, and, and what I thought would be a fun montage of me learning karate through household chores turned out to be actual work. She's got me reading people's secrets quite a bit, and I can only hear thoughts about that secret mole you hope no one sees behind your knee or plastic bags for so long. Luckily... I get to take tonight off as the vast trees have turned varying shades of amber, painting the peninsula like an eternal sunset. In other words, it's fall break. College kids from across the country are let off of school to return home for a week of debauchery, or hayrides. Tim, Claire, and James are all back from their studies, reuniting the gang, minus Jess, for a final bonfire in the woods before the UP is hit by a brutal winter. I'm wrapped in more flannel than a hipster lumberjack and ready to enjoy a night out in the woods to recuperate from the mental stress. So I can think of no better place to go than a bonfire.
1: Ugh, grade D vodka does not mix well with apple cider.
2: That's apple cider vinegar, Tim.
3: Is there a difference? Well, one is mostly vinegar.
2: Here,
0: have a swing, Tyler. No, that's okay. Alcohol rots the the brain. brain.
3: Classic Tyler, why do you even come
1: out
0: here if you're
3: not drinking?
0: Well, I like your guys' company. Aww. And the vinegars to die for.
3: Plus, we can do more than just drink. (laughs) Like what? Talk. We can talk, Tim.
0: It's good to have you guys back home for a week. How's college been?
1: Oh, so my improv team recently- PASS! What? Come on! Yes and me!
2: How about we tell scary stories?
1: Ooh, I like that.
2: Aw, thank you.
1: Just kiss already.
2: Tim!
0: Maybe
1: I should head home.
2: What? Why?
1: Yeah, don't make me a third wheel. (laughs) Worried you might get scared?
0: No, it's... I'm not good at telling scary stories. So? Like, really not good.
2: It's not that hard. You just tell them when you know.
3: It's alright if it's not scary. No, it should
1: probably be scary.
2: Here, let me go first. I'll give you an example. You may not know this, but my family has a history of migraines. We all get them, and they're awful. My aunt Trisha says it feels like someone is poking a pencil through her eardrums, or my cousin Bill says it's like TV static is eating his brain. Everyone has their own unique way to describe it, except for my grandpa Sal. Whenever we talked about migraines, he'd just sit quietly and smile. When I was 12, he took me to the beach here in Wapperton and I asked him what his migraines were like. He said he hadn't had a migraine since the 60s. And when I asked him why, he sat me down and told me a story. When he was 27, he was out on a boat off the coast west of Wapperton. There was an area that everyone likes to anchor at because the waves were gentle and it made for good swimming in the summer. The boat belonged to his friend Nick lived in the nice part of town and, according to my grandpa, wanted everyone to know. Nick offered to take my grandpa and his college friend Bill, or Potbelly Bill as he lovingly called him, and they spent a few hours anchored there in the hot sun. That's when he felt the migraine coming on. It crawled up his spine and pried its way into his head. The laughter coming from the children swimming near the other boats started to sound like screams. Nick had brought his dog along, and even its quiet panting felt like hammers against his skull. He asked Nick to bring them home. Nick rolled his eyes and called him a baby as he tied off his dog and prepared for departure. He told Bill to pull up the anchor, but after waddling his way over and yanking on the rope, it wouldn't budge. He pulled the nylon rope with all his might, but it was no use. He brought Nick over to help. Even my Grandpa Sal powered through the rattling in his skull to try, but their strength did nothing. Nick tried to tow it out by driving the boat forward, but still no luck. Whatever the anchor was stuck on, wasn't letting go. Phil wanted to cut the line, but Nick wasn't going to lose a perfectly good anchor, so he stripped off his shirt, dove into the murky water, and swam along the rope to try and free the anchor himself. Now... All the arguing between Bill and Nick had felt like cannon fire in my grandpa's skull, so when Nick dove under, there was a sudden great calm. The boat was silent, and my grandpa Sal breathed steady. Only the laughter coming from the swimming children caused him pain. That is, until Bill spoke up. I don't see Nick. Sal ignored him. It had only been a few seconds. Nick was fine. He's been down there a while, Bill said. My grandpa pried open an eye to see Bill balancing his pot belly over the back of the boat looking down into the murky water. My grandpa muttered, he's fine, and then shut his eyes from the blazing sun. That's when the dog started barking. It was agony. Each bark rattled the atoms in his gray matter. A knife was cutting his brain in half. Sal, I still don't see him, Bill shouted. It was enough to make my grandpa go mad. In a moment of desperation, he untied the dog, and it sprinted for the back of the boat and dove in. It continued barking as it paddled around the nylon rope. Sal, Bill shouted. Shut that dog up, Sal shouted back, and then it went quiet. The dog stopped barking, and my grandpa opened his eyes to see what Bill had done, but he was still balancing his gut over the back of the boat like before. The dog's gone. Bill said it in a shaking whisper. What do you mean he's gone? My grandpa asked. Where did he go? Down. Bill backed away from the boat's ledge. Down? You mean he dove under? It took my grandpa all his strength, but he picked himself up and stumbled to the back of the boat. No, Bill said. He went down. By the waist. My grandpa didn't understand what he meant. He couldn't understand. He looked down into the water, searching for the dog when a strange calm came over him. He didn't know why. His migraine still pounded. Sure, the dog had stopped barking, but there was something else. He couldn't hear the kids laughing. All around the anchored boats, the water was clear. Where did all the swimmers go? That's when the bubbles came large, thick bubbles that rose to the surface of the water and popped with a sticky sound. They only came up around the anchor rope. On the few nearby boats, you saw families and friends being startled as they looked to see bubbles near their boats as well. And they smelled. They smelled of mildew, warm cheese, rotting beef, bile, acid, sulfur, and turned milk. They smelled of day-old pus, sweaty crevices, stagnant swamps, chunky cream, and sawdust on a thrown-up lunch they smelled like digestion. My grandpa fell back into the boat as the stench infested every opening his body had. He felt it wriggle through his nose and slide down his throat. It pushed its way to every corner of his body until it settled in his mind. His migraine fought with needles sharp as splinters to keep it out, but it pushed past the blood-brain barrier and gassed his neurons with chemical warfare. The pain could split his hemispheres in two. He heard the other boat speed away from the stench as Bill keeled over and emptied the contents of his stomach into the lake. Give me a knife, my grandpa choked as he climbed to the back of the boat. Bill stood bent over, still spewing into the lake. Instead of floating on the surface, the chunks sank straight down into the murky depths. A knife, Bill, my grandpa yelled, and Bill finally slid him a pocket knife. He began sawing away at the rope. Something was tugging on it, trying desperately to pull it down beneath the lake. Each cut to the nylon stretched the rope until it snapped between the tension and shot down into the water. And it stopped. The smell disappeared. The bubbles were gone. Even my grandpa's migraine was nowhere to be seen. The two of them sat in silence as they caught their breath. They didn't dare speak about Nick. They both knew he was gone. It wouldn't be till they got back to shore that my grandpa would notice Bill looked a lot thinner. And it would be two months before he realized he hadn't had a migraine since that day. Even then, as he told me this story, he wondered if he'd ever have a migraine again. See, it's easy. And there's really nothing to... Tim! Stop drinking the vinegar! Uh,
1: What? It's growing on me.
2: It's vinegar!
1: I had to do something to get through your boring story. I thought it was scary.
2: Yeah, get over yourself, Tim. All right, Tyler. Now you try.
0: Just something I know?
2: Just something you know.
0: Statement of Captain Burt regarding a particularly frightening salmon fish sandwich he had. Original statement given June 12th, 2021. Audio recording by Tyler Bopp, chief candle boy of Bopp's Candles, Whopperton. Statement begins. What are you doing? Telling what I know.
2: But why are you telling it like that?
0: It's what all the good horror podcasts do. Some guy works for some fake paranormal institute, acts like he's documented an important interview, and then does a dramatic reading.
3: Dramatic reading? Why would he make it dramatic if it's his job.
0: I don't know. Look, I told you I'm bad at this.
1: That's only because you had a bad example from Claire.
2: I'll force the rest of that vinegar down your throat. I'd like that. And your story didn't make any sense.
1: There's something scary in the water, but we never see it. Why is that scary?
2: Fear of the unknown. Fear of
1: my ass. If you want to tell a good story, you have to tell it about something that actually scares you. And we have to
2: see it. If we were on that boat, I would have pushed you in.
1: Here, let me show you. Over a century ago, when Wopperton was still young, we were the heart of the Upper Peninsula's copper industry. Men came from all around to mine in the pierces' winding tunnels, and just as many men made their fortune as did meet their terrible end. Coming off a tragic shift, all bodies that could be salvaged were brought to the miners' graveyard deep within these woods. Not too far from where we're sitting now, the whole community would gather and lay their dead to rest peacefully among the deer and the trees. So you can imagine why it'd be hard to show up to work with a smile on your face. But one miner by the name of Copper Joe was always cheerful. His father owned the Wapperton dynamite fuse factory, so naturally he was the mining company's detonation specialist. He'd show up with his box of dynamite whistling a tune. With a crazed look in his eye, he'd light the explosives and BOOM! The rock would collapse to the sound of Joe's cackling laughter. The other miners didn't like that Joe would laugh, but that wasn't the worst thing about him. He was so obsessed with explosives that he would hunt with them. He'd set traps throughout the woods and once his prey was caught, blow them up to kingdom come. The town thought it was barbaric, but still, It didn't stop him. One night, a few miners were grabbing drinks after a shift and they started talking about a deer that couldn't be caught. It had outwitted almost every hunter in town. And even worse, a few people who had pursued it had never returned. This was enough to turn most away, but Joe jumped up on the table and said, Those spineless worms can't trap a stupid deer. I'll show them how it's done. I'll blow that deer to bits. The other miners tried to dissuade him, but it was too late. He promised to bring back the head of the deer. Next morning, whistling the same tune as always, he traveled deep within these woods with as much TNT as his arms could carry. He spent all day setting up traps, but by the late afternoon, he had nothing to show. He was starting to get tired but he had promised not to return without the deer's head. He decided to take a quick break in a small clearing to rest his eyes, but quickly dozed off. When he woke up, the moon was high in the sky. He had no idea how long he had been asleep, but as soon as his confusion wore off, he saw it. About 15 yards in front of him, a deer head was looking at him. The deer's neck rose from the bushes, so it looked like it was just floating there. The moon made its fur gray and decayed, and even its eyes looked glossy and lifeless. But it was looking at him. Those large, black eyes were fixed right on him, unmoving. Joe leapt up and the head darted into the woods. He went to chase after it, but stopped himself right before falling into a pit in front of him. It was obscured by the shadows, but he could tell it was dug, and at the bottom were several sharpened sticks. It was a trap, unlike any he had seen before, too big to be for any regular animal, but it hadn't been there when he fell asleep. No one could have known where he was, And that's when the deer's glossy stare came back to him. He shoved the thought from his mind and pursued the deer. Someone must be pulling his leg. They had to. But as he walked those woods, there was an uneasiness to him. He could barely make out the deer far off in the trees before him, but every time he got closer, it seemed to drift further away, as if leading him on. He followed it through unfamiliar woods for what felt like hours, till he came to a clearing he finally recognized. The miner's graveyard. Rows of his friend's corpses sat just beneath his feet. And as he followed the graves, he came to a new hole. A fresh hole. A hole dug just like the pit. It was calling to him to step inside to lay down, to sleep. He backed away and was ready to leave, but that's when the deer stepped into the clearing. It didn't move right. Its neck was too long, its legs twitched and snapped in ways Joe couldn't understand. Its eyes were large and dead, but it looked at him all the same. The worst part was that it spoke. John. Joe tried to back away, but he tripped, and the thing glided closer. You've terrorized this earth above and below. Join your fellow man. Its long neck craned above Joe and looked down with its beady eyes. All Joe could do was raise the dynamite in protection. I was chosen by the earth below. Kill me, and your fate will be worse. Your fellow man. Its hoof reached out to Joe with a sickly snap. It was too much. Joe lit the fuse and clambered away. He ran as fast as he could. Not even the sound of the explosion could stop him. Joe was a lot quieter after that. He kept to himself and stayed away from the mine. He told a few what happened, but no one believed him. One friend who hadn't seen him hunting or working asked him why he insisted on locking himself away. He just said, The voices, the mind, the wind, the animals, they all say it the same way. Join your fellow man. Two weeks after Joe went hunting, he disappeared. That same day, a bad cave-in happened in the mine and none of the bodies were recovered. The thing is, there are a lot of graves missing headstones in that graveyard nearby, so we can't really tell if the earth above or below took him. What we do know is this. Some people hear his whistling at night in these trees. Some miners have reported to hear his cackles in the caverns below. Pray you never hear Joe whisper his call. Join your fellow man. For by then, it's too late. Boom! That's how you tell a scary story.
3: So we don't know where Joe died? Yeah. Spooky, right?
2: Yeah. Fear of the unknown.
3: What? No!
1: It's scary because it's about something everyone is afraid of. Miners? Deer! We're afraid of deer. Are we? It's in our blood. With their their little hooves and their stupid noises, they're born killers. I'm not sure if that's why. So now that Tyler knows what a real scary story is, let's see what you've got.
0: Just make it about something that scares me? Exactly. Okay. I'm standing just outside of Bob's Candle Shop in City Center. It's a beautiful day, and I'm ready to get some great interviews from my lovely audience. That's why I can think of no better-
2: Tyler! Tyler Bob, right? Hi? Oh, where are my manners? I'm Tina Boop. My family just moved here.
0: Is that a microphone?
2: Oh, yeah. I'm making a podcast to save my mom's decorative plate store. Ahoy, Tina! Captain Bertha. Me
4: and Jane the Bully have
2: been waiting down by the
4: docks for ages. I used to bully you, but now I'm reformed. Where you been?
2: Sorry, guys. I was training with the wizard at the edge of town. Ugh, I'm so upset. I'm gonna write a poem about it.
0: Wait, how many listeners does your podcast have?
2: Uh, last time I checked, I think it was a million? No!
1: That's what you're afraid of?
0: She's a better version of me. But she isn't real. How do you know? She could move into town any day. Look, you guys have got it
3: all wrong. Tina haunts my dreams. Sure. The unknown is scary, and drawing from your fears is definitely a good idea. I barely sleep anymore. But the best scary stories are the ones that are real. Real? How do you know Copper Joe wasn't real?
2: You kept saying the deer had a long neck. It's exaggeration!
3: You can't beat the real deal. Here, let me show you. Do you know how Sawyer Pierce died? Everyone will tell you he drowned while swimming in Lake Superior, but that's only half true. He did drown, but the story of why is something my family has done a lot to keep buried. You see, the ownership of the mines used to be passed down by generation. Sawyer made sure of it. He wrote that when the current owner was no longer fit to run the company, he would pass it on to his eldest son. For the most part, this rule was kept, except in the case of Thomas Pierce. Thomas was Sawyer's eldest son and is widely overlooked in Wapperton's history. He was always timid, and from what my dad told me, Sawyer wasn't the best father to him. He couldn't live up to Sawyer's standard, and Sawyer made sure he knew that. Thomas spent most of his young life in Sawyer's shadow, being paraded around town as the heir to the fortune, but only speaking when spoken to. It's sad, really, but the strange part is this. Every year, at a random date, Sawyer would bring Thomas to that big tree in the park and make him pray. He'd bring him in the dead of night, make him kneel by its trunk, and tell him all sorts of strange things to say. He'd make him pledge his allegiance to the tree, ask that it would look favorably upon him, and that one day he might be just like Sawyer. I can imagine Thomas must have hated it, but he didn't have the courage to stand up to his father, so he would just do as he said. As the years went on, Sawyer grew older, and his mind began to slip. One year, he woke Thomas up in the middle of the night and told him it was time. They walked the streets with only a lantern, but they passed the tree. Sawyer led them through the woods to the mouth of Pierce Mineshaft Shaft A, and had Thomas yell his prayers down into it, pledge his allegiance to it, and ask that he be just like Sawyer. Thomas did as he was asked in the hopes that his father would let him go home. The next year, Sawyer led him through the woods and to the mine, but he didn't stop there. He brought Thomas down the winding tunnels where the light from their lamp barely showed where they stepped. They walked all the way to the heart of the mine, and Sawyer had Thomas yell his prayers to the copper vein. Thomas tried to resist, but Sawyer wouldn't let him go until he did. He screamed his allegiance, and his pleas to be made just like his father bounced all around him in a terrible cascade. Sawyer kept him there much longer than he had before. After almost an hour of yelling himself hoarse, Thomas was allowed to leave. As Sawyer got older, he became more crazed and desperate. Every year, he'd lead Thomas to some new part of the mine. He started bringing him down more frequently, too. Three times a year, then four, five, six. Soon enough, they would go every month. Sawyer began to join in the prayers, too, begging the cavern to help him his son, do for Thomas what it had done for him. Thomas didn't understand what Sawyer wanted, but any objection would be met with a shouting match. Sawyer wouldn't let him stop praying. He must have walked every inch of that shaft. Rumor has it that when Sawyer got really old, he'd sleep down there, muttering his pleas to the suffocating darkness. Sawyer was 65 when he died. He woke Thomas up and told him it was time just like he always did, but Thomas objected. They had their usual fight, and Sawyer came out on top. Instead of going to the mine, they went to the beach. They walked along the shore until they came to a natural cave. You see, the mine had gotten so big it had linked up to a cave system. Sawyer was trying a different entrance. He told Thomas to start, and as always, Thomas tried to fight him, but it was no use. Thomas began the usual prayer, now forever burned in his head. It was muscle memory at this point. I pledge myself to you and your will, lest I be struck dead otherwise. Heed my prayer and make me like my father. After half an hour, Sawyer became upset and told him to pray louder. Thomas shouted to the abyss, heed my prayer and make me like my father. It wasn't enough. Sawyer needed more so he screamed himself raw, make me like my father, make me like my father, make me like my father. Sawyer cracked and began to wail down the cave. He blabbered all sorts of nonsense that Thomas couldn't understand, pleaded with something Thomas couldn't see. Sawyer demanded to see its face that after all this time and work it owed this to him that his son should have the gift too That's when a large gust of wind roared down the cave and blew the two away it whipped them like a typhoon until it finally subsided and a small voice followed no that's all it said but Thomas heard it he couldn't understand he turned to his father and asked what happened what the voice was but Sawyer stood only with a blank expression. After a good minute, Sawyer turned to his son and said this. It's useless. You'll never be like me. Sawyer then walked out of the cave and into Lake Superior. He was found drowned the next morning. After that, the mine went to Thomas. But even though he was technically the owner, it was his sister Sarah that really ran the business. He was more of a figurehead who just signed what Sarah told him to sign and stayed in his office. He kept to himself like always, but some say they would see him down in the mine, calling out to nothing, pleading that he be just like his father. Dang.
2: Is that real?
3: My grandpa told it to me. My dad always insisted it was just a scary story, but he swore by
2: it. That's, that's, that's awful.
3: Still not as bad as deer. I'm sure he exaggerated some stuff. <laughs> grandpa Theon always liked to put on a show. Like, I doubt the cave could talk.
0: Yeah, I, I think I'm gonna hope that's not real.
3: Either way, that's what makes a scary story great. Anything happened to you that's really scary, Tyler?
0: Yeah. I think I might have a story. I'm assuming you all know the story about Old Man O'Toole. You can't grow up in Whopperton without hearing it. It's a simple story. A long time ago, a crazed lunatic worked at the Wapperton lighthouse. People called him Old Man O'Toole, and the only time anyone ever saw him was at night, when he walked the streets dragging a rusty axe behind him. The middle scraped the pavement loud enough to wake the town in time to watch the disheveled man from their windows. He chopped wood, just at the edge of town, making sure that he could be seen. He dragged the wood behind him all the way back to the lighthouse, and that'd be that. The town paid him no mind as long as the tower was lit, but one night, O'Toole stopped leaving the house to chop wood. Now the next part depends on who's telling the story. Some say people in the town begin to disappear, others say it's people of town over, but the most popular version is that children start going missing. They all end the same way, though. In the middle of the night, a scream erupts from the lighthouse as a woman runs from its entrance down Main Street, and she's on fire. She screams, He burned them! He burned them for the light! as she collapses dead in the center of Whopperton. The town storms the lighthouse to find O'Toole is nowhere to be seen, and that all that's left is his journal, Written on each page is the names of the missing children. It's no wonder why this story's been told for so many years. It leaves an impression. But as you get older, you find out that lighthouses don't run on burned bodies, they run on electricity. That besides Todd and I, not a lot of people have gone missing around here. And that records show no tool never worked in the lighthouse. You grow out of it, and that's the end. Or at least I thought it was. A few years ago, while working in the candle shop, a very old woman came in from out of town. Back then, I didn't get many chances to talk to people, so I trapped her into a conversation. Her name was Carrie Oak, and she used to live here with her mother when she was young. Now, as you know, I can hear people's secrets while talking to them. And when I asked Carrie why she left, a single secret raced into her mind a guilty secret O'Toole was innocent and only took a few more questions before I had heard the whole story. Turns out, it's true that an old man O'Toole never worked in the lighthouse. He just lived there. The lighthouse shut down in 1908 and became private property. And in 1934, a Mr. Van Gardner sold it to a Mr. O'Toole. O'Toole's real job was as a lumber worker. And when he wasn't out cutting trees, he stayed home and didn't bother anyone. In fact, the only person in Warpedon he ever spent time with was Carrie Oak's mother, Mary. Mary Oak lived right across the old footbridge from the lighthouse and was a writer. She wrote an advice column that became very popular across Michigan, especially for children. From what I could gather, it was kind of like a Mr. Rogers neighborhood, and she would receive fan mail from all across the state. Kids reaching out about their own problems or parents asking for advice. She'd even keep up correspondence with some of the kids who really needed help. She was clearly loved, but none cared for her more than O'Toole. He crossed that bridge every day to spend time with her. They never married, but everyone knew they were together. At least Carrie knew. From what I heard from Carrie, it seemed like Mary was a perfect parent to all but her own daughter. Carrie often felt neglected by her mother. She always said she was too busy writing her column, although all Carrie ever saw her do was read the letters. The fan mail. She'd catch her mother reading the letters late into the night, only to hear her say that she was too tired to play today. She loved the letters more than her. By the time she was 18, Carrie was ready to move out. She asked her mother to help her move, but Mary said what she always said. She was too busy. Carrie was furious. Eighteen years of being brushed to the side boiled up. She raced to her mother's room and grabbed as many letters as she could carry. She brought them outside, threw them into a pile, and lit them ablaze they burned with fever, and Carrie turned to her mother with a wicked smile on her face. She wanted to see defeat, a look of despair, a look to make up for all the pain, but it was none of that. Carrie's smile dropped as she saw her mother's true face, a look of horror. Mary screamed as she ran for the fire. Carrie had no time to react as she watched her mother fling herself onto the burning pile. Mary's cries echoed through the night as she tried to save the letters. She burned them! Mary yelled. She burned them! Carrie was frozen. She didn't know what to do. She could only watch her mother burn alive. As the last of Mary's cries died out, the flames began to lower, and Carrie saw O'Toole standing on the other side of the fire. He had been awoken by the screams and rushed over just in time to see the last seconds of Mary's life. He ran to Carrie, asked what happened, but Carrie was silent. More of the town began to gather, all awoken by Mary's screams, and they all asked Carrie what happened. How could she say what she had done? How could she tell them she had killed their beloved Mary? She sobbed, and then screamed, and then pointed her finger at O'Toole and yelled, He did it! He killed Mary! He burned her alive! The police arrested O'Toole, took statements, but there wasn't much in the way of evidence. Carrie and O'Toole's stories conflicted, and neither could be proven, so the case was thrown out. But the public believed Carrie. Poor sweet Carrie, raised by a saint. How could she do any wrong? That O'Toole though, he was a recluse, a recluse that carried an axe to work. He was berated everywhere he went. One day, some teens broke into his home and found his journal. They showed everyone the names he had written in it. They claimed they were his next victims. But Carrie recognized the names for what they really were. They were the children her mother had kept in contact with. The ones who had written her letters. O'Toole had been reaching out to them to offer condolences, to try and find whose letters had been burned. It was too much. For both Carrie and O'Toole, Carrie moved out a few weeks later, and O'Toole was gone two months after that. Years passed, and the story twisted from generation to generation. It was boiled down to its basic parts. A recluse, a book of names, and a burning woman. O'Toole lost his only love, and in return became Whopperton's boogeyman. But if you ask me, Carrie got the worst punishment. Standing in that shop... All I could read from her mind was guilt-eating her alive. She had a life torn apart with regrets. If only she would tell someone. But I knew she never would. How can anyone forgive her if she couldn't forgive herself? Maybe by telling you this story now, I've helped some of that guilt be released. I truly hope I did. Whoa!
2: Bravo! You really read that?
0: Yeah, it's the scariest thing I ever read from someone's mind.
2: That's upsetting. I can't believe someone in Whopperton would- I FINISHED THE VINEGAR! I am going to put you through a wall.
0: Thank you guys for this. I've never told a good story before. Turns out it just has to be real.
3: Wait. Can you really read minds? Oh. Shit.
4: Ooh! You've made a terrible choice! And now I shall take your life sometime in the not so distant future! Ooh! Man, this would be a lot scarier if you could see my costume. I'm dressed as climate change. Anyways, happy Halloween! Nothing like a scary credit section to get you into the spooky mood, and nothing is as scary as the incredible music tracks made this episode. Emmett Hoosman did the spooky tracks for Tim's Deer Story as well as some other ambient tones, but he wasn't the only musician this time. Sam Nicewander scored James' Sawyer Pierce Story, and Leo Macariola made the Magnus Archives theme parody. You can find Emmett's other work at emmethoosman.com, contact Leo on his Instagram at leomacariola, and Sam wants to plug- (sighs) His sister-in-law's dog's Instagram at Moose the Cavapoo. Please just get a website or literally anything already. Our lovely cast, comprised of Tim, Claire, and James, played by James, Claire, and Vincenzo. James Colonane is on Instagram at jmois. Claire Glennon is on Instagram at Claire Glennon. And Vincenzo makes music that is too good for this world on his two albums, Jittersplit and This Skeleton Slash Este Squilito. I'm putting the link in the description, so please check them out, these songs are amazing. Tina Bopp was played by Megan Steely, Captain Bertha was played by Isabella Garcia, and Jane the Virgin- <coughs> sorry, Jane the Bully was played by Tessa Newman. A nice subtle reference, Declan. Speaking of Declan, he wrote, edited, and produced this episode as well as playing Tyler. Great job buddy, here's a cookie! The show has a Patreon if you want to support it at patreon.com mytown. Thank you to the Audio Mint Network for having us aboard. Please rate the show. We would love to hear from you. I mean, hell, even just email us at mytownpodcast at gmail.com. Send us a message. Ding dong, ditch us. Throw some eggs at our windows because we only give out toothbrushes. Thank you. And good night.
2: You were just listening to an Audio Mint Podcast.